Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Um, Before we jump into our time of teaching, I want to share with you uh, something happening this coming Saturday here at DCC, and that is a, a time of discussion and a time of learning uh, with Brian McLaren. Some of you may know who Brian is. He's a prolific author who's written, gosh, I don't know how many books over the last 25 plus years. And he's really been someone who, in many ways, is a parent figure guiding those who are asking difficult questions about their faith. Questions like, do I stay Christian? Now, one thing I know is that oftentimes, if you have the courage to voice these questions, people say things like, well, they're really struggling. Have we heard this? Or, well, they've just kind of thrown everything away. Uh, Or, we should really be praying for them, followed by very detailed ways to pray about you. It's not gossip, it's sharing prayer requests, that kind of thing. Uh, But what I know is this, the people who are asking these questions are asking it because they're actually concerned and they actually care about their faith, and they're trying to figure out how to make this faith that we were given fit with the world in which we're living now. And so if this is something that interests you, uh, you can go to our homepage and scroll down and you can click there and register, or you can bring some folks. Uh, Brian's going to talk for about 15 minutes, then there's going to be a time of discussion and then a panel discussion, and we'll be able to interact a lot with each other. We would love to see you there this Saturday here at DCC, 7 p.m., and we'll meet downstairs in the ballroom. With that said, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our time of teaching. God, we come together this morning and we do so grateful Uh, that we get to be alongside one another, knowing that you are in our midst, knowing that we come to center ourselves around you, uh, the God who gives life and breath and everything else to each of us. As we pay attention and turn our attention toward your scriptures this morning, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would invite us toward the kind of life you wish to give us. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 21. If you don't, you can follow along on your device, or there's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you. Revelation 21. It's always a weird morning when the pastor starts by saying, turn to the book of Revelation. Am I right? It's kind of an interesting thing, but if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been talking about what's next. We're living in a time right now of great upheaval. 
a time when the world that we knew has ended, where we find ourselves in this middle place, and we're asking questions whether we give them voice or not. What's next? What's coming? What's going to happen with the world? What are we going to make of the world? And one of the things uh, that I know is that when it comes to the future, people are always very interested in what's going to happen. This is nothing new because this is what we find John writing in Revelation 21, verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and God will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, if there's one word that I would choose to describe the book of Revelation, it would be bizarre. It's an odd book. I don't recommend you ever reading it if you've had more than one drink in the last week. Just saying. <laughs> now, if you've ever actually read through the book of Revelation, I mean, there's dragons, there's beasts coming up out of the sea, there's a woman who's given the wings of the great eagle, or eagle to fly into the wilderness to safety to avoid being murdered because of the son she gave birth to. There's angels, there's wars. The wars are so fierce that the blood from the wars runs like a river and is as high as the bridle of a horse. There's death, there's plagues, there's curses. Some of you are like, are we still talking about the book of Revelation or Game of Thrones? Because it um, kind of sounds a little bit odd. Exactly. And a book that's this bizarre, a book that's like a little bit off, far and away the most bizarre book in the Bible, Song of Songs notwithstanding, it is an odd book, and because of that, it's given rise to all sorts of controversy. There's some discussion, not much, but some around when this book was actually written. What was the date that it was written? And many agree it was written toward the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian. We know that Domitian's reign en ended in 96 AD, and so many would date the writing of the book right around there. And what's fascinating is the earliest controversy around the book of Revelation erupted in the early 2nd century, less than a decade after it was written. And it's continued pretty much every decade since where people continue to debate and argue over this complex, confusing, mysterious, sometimes completely bonkers book. People have debated it so much that in the 4th century, 
There were some portions of the church that said, you know what, we're going to leave the book of Revelation completely out of our version of the Bible because it's clear that it was written by a madman who was having some sorts of visions and that he wrote those down. So we're just going to leave it out of the Bible entirely. There are some who say, no, we need to include it in the Bible because it's clear that it's from God and we need to work to understand it. And it just gives rise to more and more controversy. And throughout every decade and every century since its writing, there has been controversy around it. And what's interesting is that within all this controversy, there is seemingly one thing that scholars and teachers and those who've studied the book agree upon, and that's this. The book is about the future. Not necessarily all of it, but definitely the trajectory of this whole thing is about the future. And that's precisely why there's so much argument. I mean, if you want to start an argument with someone, just offer up a prediction about pretty much anything. Be like, I heard it's supposed to be cold on Tuesday. Oh, really? Yep. My app says it's going to be 74. You're like, who? Who By the way, can we just be honest about Colorado? If you're a weather person, I apologize in advance. I think those who work in the news and report on the weather should just tell us what's happening now. That's it. Just turn on the news, be like, it's going to be like 70 degrees in about an hour. Be like, okay, now I know how to dress. Stop trying to predict it because you're always wrong. I wish I could have a job where I'm wrong like 90% of the time and still get paid. You're either a weather person or a politician, and those two things work. It's great. Good, good payday. You want, to start a, you want to start an argument, talk about the future. Listen to how people talk about the upcoming elections. It's all of their predictions. You know, if so-and-so gets elected and the house turns, this is what's going to happen and this is where we're going to go. Our country's heading this way. I know that, oh, no, 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 no. If this happens, people argue. And here's what's so fascinating. We actually don't know the future. None of us do. We act like we do. Ask somebody, what are you doing next weekend? And they'll tell you exactly what they're doing next weekend because we spend our time before we're ever given it. But we don't know. And maybe that's why we argue so much. Because we don't like to admit that we don't know something. And so rather than just shrug our shoulders and say, I have no idea what the weather's going to be like on Saturday, or I have no idea what's going to happen with the midterm elections, we just decide that we're going to argue. And this is what you find for centuries around the book of Revelation. Arguments about the future. There was one individual in the history of commentary on the book of Revelation, who actually had a little bit of humility when it came to what this book was about. This is from the third century. Dionysius, who was the bishop of Alexandria in Africa, said this, I could not venture to reject the book of Revelation, but I suppose that it is beyond my comprehension and that there is a concealed and more wonderful meaning in every part. For though I do not understand, yet I suspect that a deeper sense lies beneath the words. And these I do not measure and judge by my private reason, but, allowing more to faith, I have regarded them as too lofty to be comprehended by me. And I do not reject what I cannot comprehend, but rather wonder, because I do not understand it. One modern commentator said, far too few interpreters have been this modest. The reality is what he, is what, of what he's saying is what we should be saying. We don't know the future. In other words, we don't really know what this book's about. Now, there might be some hints, but we really don't know. Now, some of you be, it might be like, wait, 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 what do you mean you don't know? You just read 
some verses that John wrote about what the future is going to look like. It's abundantly clear. This is how we started the whole time together. To which I would say, if it was abundantly clear, then there would be, I would say, round agreement on what this book is actually about. Yes, it's about the future, but we wouldn't have to speculate. And because it's about the future, there's endless opinions. There's endless ideas of what will happen. You can go to some places and they'll have a chart of how everything's going to happen and when it's going to happen and who's going to cause it to happen. Some people have talked about the future in this book and they've written a novel about it. And then the novel did really well. And so then they wrote a whole series of novels about it. And those series of novels did really well. And then that series of novels turned into a series of films. And for the briefest of moments, it revived the film career of Kirk Cameron. <laughs> Talk about a future no one saw coming. Am I right? We don't know. If it was so abundantly clear, there'd be one idea about what's going to happen. But we fundamentally do not know. We do not understand. Which raises the question, why? Why talk about the future at all? What was in the mind of the writer when he wrote these words? And what was in the mind of the reader when they read these words? And maybe rather than debate about the future and the order of things and the time frame and everything else, we can just simply ask those two questions. Why and how? Why did the writer pen these words and send them off to the churches? And how did ancient people read words like these and understand them in their context? So first, why? Why write a book like this with these fantastic visions and these almost poetic images of what the end of the world is going to look like? Well, there's actually quite a bit of literature that's similar to the book of Revelation that comes out of the ancient world in Judaism and in Christianity in particular. It's called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature does speak about a revealing, something that's being seen. It speaks about visions, and it's often geared toward the future. But one of the reasons, one of the central reasons that apocalyptic literature was written is it was sent to people who were in a place of crisis as a way of telling them salvation is here for you. They would write to those who were in crisis, like the early Christians who were being persecuted, saying, hey, salvation is present. Not along some distant day, salvation is present, and it's present here, and it's present now. And this is what we see the writer doing. If you read through the entire book of Revelation, there's a whole portion of it where the seven churches of Asia Minor are addressed specifically. We know it was written to a group of people. We also know that this group of people, who were a very small group, numbering only probably in the hundreds, in the midst of this empire, we're living through a time where persecution against Christians was at its highest point. These were people under crisis, in crisis, under persecution by the Roman authorities. And they needed to know salvation was present, not along some distant day, but now. And this is what this vision of the future did. Keep in mind, Rome had its own vision of the future. Rome, just like any empire before or since, never said, hey, here's what's going to happen when our empire collapses. They never said, hey, 
as we begin losing our global influence and our global power, here's some things to keep in mind. One of the many lies of empire is that it will last forever. And what's funny is we continue to believe it as human beings because we really want to believe in permanence. And so we live here in the United States. You hear anyone else talking about the end of the country and what we need to do? No. Only as a means to motivate people to behave a certain way now. But there's not really this idea that one day we're just going to be off the face of the earth and we'll be only existing in history books. That doesn't work. It doesn't get people to show up for 4th of July. But this is what the writer is doing. Is he's going beyond the empire saying, hey, there's a whole story being told here and it's completely different than the one that you're hearing. It was to give them hope in salvation now. And then the question is, well, how did the people hear it? What did they do with it? When they read these words, what went through their minds? Well, this hope in salvation that was offered to them by this vision was not there saying, hey, it's all going to be fine. You're going to be okay. Those would be cheap words. Because for those who received this letter, this book in its day, they were routinely rounded up and fed to wild animals while a crowd sat in the arena watching the whole display, cheering. These were individuals who were rounded up and were crucified, who were burned at the stake, people who were reviled, people who were at the bottom of society. So when they heard this, it wasn't, hey, it's going to be okay. What they heard was, hey, we know where this whole thing is going. Hey, we know that there is a story that's being peddled by the empire. It's the dominant narrative that nearly everyone has bought into. But there is another story, a subversive story, that we're inviting you to trust with your life. You see, the dominant narrative is the story of the beast, as is talked about in the book of Revelation. The one who conquers through power. The subversive story is the story of the lamb who looks as though it's been slain, the author of Revelation tells us who still bears wounds, wounds by which we are healed. That's the subversive story. This is the one that we're inviting you to trust. And trust this story to the extent that that future hope actually begins to inform the way you live right here and right now. And one of the things that we know about the early Christians long before the Christianity was adopted as the official religion of the Roman Empire is that it seems as though they did trust this story. This is why early Christians refused to say, Hail, Caesar is Lord, because they said we have one Lord and one Christ, one King, and it's not Caesar. By the way, as an aside, I think we should often pay attention to the refusal of early Christians to participate in the politics of an empire, of a global military superpower. They didn't say, well, we're just going to wait until our Caesar is on the throne. They didn't say, well, we know who's in the Senate now. If we work really hard and we can flip it, then we can really affect change. Let me put it in the modern parlance. They didn't say, well, I mean, let's be honest. should probably get more Democrats in there. Or, depending where you are, let's be honest, Democrats want to take us in a dangerous direction. We've got to get more Republicans in there. No, they said, Jesus for president, to quote our friend Shane Claiborne. That's, that's our king. 
And we're going to live such compelling and powerful lives rooted in humility in our world now that we will so affect change in our world that people will have to take notice of us. They didn't start with politics. And by the way, all the greatest movements in the world, including the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage, started in the pews of churches, not in the halls of politics. Maybe we should stop saying, hail Biden or Trump is Lord. I don't know, just a thought. Moving on, because it's getting uncomfortable, isn't it? <laughs> by the way, when you crack a joke after something's tense, you can always judge how tense it is by how hard people laugh at something that's not funny, which all of you just did, which means you were really tense. Still laughing. Oh, this is so fun. What about the Christians who, as written by Aristides, Aristides was a historian that recorded this, he said they would forego meals for days just so that the poor among them could have a proper burial representing them as the dignity of those who bear the divine image. They would forego food so that they could feed the poor among them. They would forego food so that they could clothe their poor siblings. What informed this kind of life? Maybe it was another story. What about the Christians who lived in Ephesus? Who it was written about that they would walk out into the trash heaps. They would walk out into their landfills. And they would sit quietly waiting to hear the cries of abandoned babies, babies who were born with disabilities, who were abandoned by their parents because in the Ephesian culture, that's not the kind of kid that you brought home because it meant the gods were frowning on you. But the Ephesian Christians went out to the trash heaps. They sat in silence. They heard the cries, and they would pick up these children and bring them home and legally adopt them as their own. This is why Paul says to the church in Ephesus, you our adopted sons and daughters. What kind of world, what kind of story informs that kind of life? It's the kind of Christians like Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, who was arrested and bound to a pyre that was going to be set on fire. And because he was a man of great reputation, the proconsul of Smyrna came to him and before he was burned said, we will let you go as long as you renounce Jesus, your king. And Polycarp, faced with death, said, 86 years have I served my Lord and King, and he's never done me any wrong. How can I defy my Lord and Savior now? And they burned him. What kind of story informs this kind of life? Maybe one that says, hey, whatever the dominant narrative is, that's not our story. There's another story being told and we know where this whole thing is going. And this story is so compelling that it changes the way we live right here and right now. Now, there's some thinking and popular thinking for a long time that has said, well, you know, all this talk about the future, I get it. But it can be unhealthy. I mean, if you live with kind of this always future gaze, it can lead to escapism and it can lead really to anxiety. One of the solutions that's been proposed is we need to be present. We need to be mindful. We need to be rooted right here and now. And by the way, that's incredibly good advice, and that has incredible health benefits, and we should practice being present and being here and now. But very recent research in the last three to four years has actually shown that thinking about the future is not what's unhealthy, but how we think about the future. 
See, what they've been able to, to find through research is when we think about the future and we kind of frame it with a doomsday idea, that's pretty unhealthy. So you finally get an interview for the job that you've been waiting for, and all you can think of is, I hope they don't ask me that question. I hope they don't ask me that question. I hope they don't ask me that question. Then you go to the interview, and guess what they do? Ask you that question, and what do you do? You tank. <laughs> like, you're just like, oh, there it is. And you just lock up, and you freeze, and it's that really awkward, like, people just staring at each other moment. Or you finally have a date with the person you've long wanted to date with, and all you can think about is, I don't have the right clothes to wear, I'm going to spill my drink. And then what do you do? You show up with a shirt that's not ironed, socks that don't match, and you spill your drink. Or like people who move west to Denver because no one's from here. I know, calm down natives, you're like, we are, we see all four of you. <laughs> people move west to Colorado and they're like, oh, I can't wait. And some people are like, I wonder how long it's going to be before I'm going to have to move back home. Because something in your mind says, I'm not going to make it. Research has shown that when you frame your future negatively, it will cause anxiety. And in some ways, you'll actually manifest those negative things. But there's another way of thinking about the future that causes anxiety. And that's when we fantasize about our future and dream impossible dreams about it. And so you have an interview. And you're like, man, give me three weeks. I want to be CEO. <laughs> no, you're not. Or you have a date. And you're like, so should I ask them to marry me before or after a dessert? You're like, whoa, pump the brakes. Or you move and you're like, I don't know what city I'm going to land in, but I'll be mayor of that town in two years. Like this idea of like this fantasy, actually what it does is it's so unrealistic, it keeps you stuck where you are. And there's this idea in our minds that we often live with of like, you can be anything you want. No, you can't. Let me speak to the ink students for a second. If your parents have said to you, you can be anything you want, just say, Michael said that's not true. Could you explain why? My parents used to say that to me. <laughs> Some of you parents are like, what did you just do? I don't know, told the truth. My parents used to say that to me, oh, you can do anything you want. And so what that really meant for my dad was like, I'm going to want you to do what I did, which was play baseball. At the age of eight, I went out for the Scroon Lake Cougars Little League team. I got cut. I didn't know there were cuts in Little League. And multiple people have been like, there's not. Right, I was just that bad. <laughs> Thank God for basketball. Because we moved from New York to Michigan. And in middle school, I went and tried out for the basketball team. And you know what? I made it. And most of the time, I didn't play. My seventh grade year, I scored two points all season long on a fast break layup. That was my only points. Eighth grade. This is when I was going to make it. I scored two points and I shot 50% from the free throw line. Do the math. By ninth grade, my dad's like, so you trying out for basketball this year? And I'm like, you were at every single game I played my seventh and eighth grade year. Why would you possibly think I'm going to go? No, I'm not going to play basketball anymore because I can't be anything I want. Baseball and basketball have taught me that hard lesson by the age of 13, thank God. And when we have these fantastic beliefs about the future, you end up stuck or living according to oughts and shoulds that everyone else is piling on you. What research has shown is this. They say a healthy way of thinking about the future is creating a realistic picture of the future. Dave Robson and Summer Allen, two researchers, wrote about this, and they said, 
if somebody wants to get into a place where they could retire, if they dream about retiring with hundreds of millions of dollars, it has been proven they will make poor financial decisions now. If they dream about retirement and say, okay, I think this is what we can do, and this is how we can live a contented life, and it might be a little bit more simple, but we'll be ready to do it by age X, they showed that people make better financial decisions in the present. They also showed that people who want to get more healthy, whether that be diet or exercise, if they're like, oh yeah, man, I signed up for this program, I don't know if you've heard of it, it costs $378, it's from some guy named Jim, and he works at a gym, and I'm going to follow his program. I'm going, to be, I'm going to telling you, give me six weeks. And six weeks later, you're like, wow, that looks really good. Six weeks after that, you're like, so you stopped the program. People who have this idea, like, I'm going to have an eight-pack and be ripped and be the next TikTok health guru, all that stuff, they say, no, actually, they don't ever change their life. People who say things like, I want to drink less. I want to exercise more. And I want to become someone who's not out of breath when I run up a flight of stairs. They said, with that realistic reality, they find that people now, looking at that future, have a more consistent exercise regimen, a better diet, better sleep schedule, and better health decisions. And for a long time, they said, what is it about that? And they finally landed on a term called future self-continuity. That when your future is a realistic picture, it actually begins to inform the way you live each and every day in your present life because you have a sense that that future is breaking into your present. They say it doesn't cause anxiety, it actually creates great health and gives you a direction in life. Which brings us back to the early church who received this bizarre book about God descending out of the sky and how the people of God looking like a bride beautifully dressed for a husband and a voice from heaven says, and now God's dwelling is with human beings. Why in the world would they believe that? Well, because some of them were the children of people who walked around on earth with Jesus. I mean, God had already been in their midst. And not only that, but they had an understanding, like, were God in the midst? I mean, after all, there's that guy Paul. Remember, he wrote a bunch of letters. He called us the body of Christ. You see, they had an understanding that, like, their future, this picture that was given to them, they were actually a part of making this a reality in the world. This is not some distant dream. This is not some fantasy way out there. It's true. And it's true enough to live like it is. This is how these kind of books worked. And I wonder, as we talk about the future here this morning, what do we believe about the future? And by the way, if you want to know the answer to that, just look at the way you're living your life presently. And I wonder, like, what would happen if someone came and spent a month with this congregation? Like what, what story would they say that we're living according to? Are we living according to the story of the empire? We're living according to the story of CNN? Living according to the story of Fox? What story are we living according to? What story is our lives telling? What story is our lives pointing to? What future does our lives say? That's where we believe this whole thing is going. 
See, I believe if we live a life that points toward this picture that John gives us of God dwelling with us, of no more death or mourning or crying or pain, wiping away every tear, I believe this vision of the future can teach us something about how to live right here, right now. The theologian Walter Brueggemann talks about living as this kind of community. He refers to it as a prophetic community. And this is what he says about living this way. By the way, let's pause on this slide, Dan, before we go ahead. It is presumed that the practice of ministry is done by those who stand in conventional places of church life and other forms of ministry derived from that model. What this says is, it's presumed that a lot of you think the work falls on me and the staff of Denver Community Church to do the work of whatever the church is. Horse crap. It's the worst lie ever peddled from the platforms of churches is that this is my job and not yours. No. I'm only doing what I do because we've agreed that I have a certain set of gifts and you've agreed to offset my time by supporting me and my family. And that goes for staff too. But we're not here to do the work. We're here hopefully to organize all of you and empower you to continue doing the work. That's the practice of ministry that all of us are called to, not just me, not just Becca, not just Chad, not just Hannah, not just John or Dave or Amanda or anyone else on staff. No, it is presumed that the practice of ministry is done by those who stand in conventional places. No. No. Let's keep going. Prophetic ministry does not consist of spectacular acts of social crusading or of abrasive measures of indignation. In other words, it's not Twitter. Rather, prophetic ministry consists of offering an alternative perception of reality and in letting people see their own history in the light of God's freedom and God's will for justice. It concerns a stance and posture about the world of death and the world of life that can be brought to life in every context. Prophetic ministry seeks to penetrate the numbness in order to face the body of death in which we are caught. Clearly, the numbness sometimes evokes from us rage and anger. But the numbness is more likely to be penetrated by grief and lament. It requires anguish and a sharing in the pain. Prophetic ministry seeks to penetrate despair so that new futures can be believed and embraced by us. There is a yearning for energy in a world grown weary. And we do not and we do know that the only act that energizes is a word, a gesture, an act that believes in our future and affirms it. What would it look like for us to be a prophetic community? Now, I know that in some contexts, and there's three weeks on vision at a church, the pastor stands up and says, here's where we're going. But I don't know where we're going. I don't know the future just in case you were wondering. I don't know. I can't forecast it. What I do know is that there is a subversive story being told that has continued to be told that undermines and cuts against the grain of any empire that's ever existed. And it's a story rooted in the life of Jesus. And what I know is that this story was compelling enough where the early Christians lived a life that was an alternative to the perceived reality that was so compelling that they went from an obscure, marginal movement in the backwoods of Israel to the dominant force in an empire hundreds of years later that no one could quash. How? Because they lived a subversive story. What would that look like for us? What does it look like for us? 
I think ways in which we're doing that is that we bought a new building over on Zunai and Alameda. Some of you know about this. And uh, right about the time we were about to close on that building, we got a phone call that immigrants who've long been used as a political pawn by both parties were being shipped from the border to different cities around the world. And Dave Newhousel, our executive uh, director of Project Renew, said, hey, we can house like 100 of them in this new building of ours. And our city has turned to us and said, oh good, we need your help. Dave said he walked into the permitting office downtown. And if you've ever been in the permitting office, it's just like a world of bureaucracy. It's really hard to get in to get through all the red tape, if you know what I mean. And Dave said he walked in and they were like, wait, are you that pastor? And Dave was like, I think so. And they walked him around and introduced him to everybody. Blown away that we just said, no, these are people seeking asylum. We believe they're image bearers. We believe that they, at the very least, deserve a welcome. And so use our building. Yeah, that, that's saying, yeah, I think there's another story being told. What about generosity? One of the things I love about this faith community is that 20% of everything that comes in goes to Project Renew to fund work like we're doing. I just learned a story this week where when the Taliban took power in Afghanistan, there was a woman here locally whose heart broke, wondering what was going to happen to all of those who were in the crosshairs of the Taliban. And she started making phone calls, didn't even know where this whole thing was going. But found some context, contacts and was able to begin hiding hundreds of people in Afghanistan from the government, working to get them out of Afghanistan. This week, Dave walked in my office and showed me a video of one such young man who said, I'm in Brazil now, and I'm safe. Thank you, Denver Community Church. And I was like, Denver Community Church? He said, yeah, because the woman who started this nonprofit called me and said, hey, we need some money to get this guy out. And because of your generosity, we were able to write a check to her, and she got him out. Like, your generosity literally saved a life in the last couple of weeks because you're giving. What about just being kind? I've often said that kindness is like the most underestimated Christian character quality ever. Because it kind of sounds a little hokey, doesn't it? Like, when's the last time you walked up to someone and were like, you're pretty kind? You're like, don't write cards, please, because that's terrible. Just being kind. Kindness means this. When you see someone acting in a way that you deem inappropriate, going, hmm, I wonder what's stirring in them that's causing them to act this way. I'm going to go and find out. When you see someone who's agitated or mean-spirited, you respond by saying, I would really love to embrace you in any way that I can and hear about what's going on with you. Kindness is when somebody says, hey, I need something. You say, how can I figure out how to get it to you? You see, the reality is, is that all we have to do is look at our lives and we'll know what story we're living according to and we'll know what we believe is going to happen about the future. I don't know what's going to happen with the future. What I do know is here at Denver Community Church, we exist to be a healing presence in our world. What will that look like? I think it'll shift and change depending on what the needs are. But what I know is that we are able to live as a healing presence because we know the healing presence through whom we've received healing. What is our future? To live as a healing presence because we trust another story. Let's pray together.
God, would you give us eyes to see the ways in which we live where we, we're telling a story other than the one you've given us? Would you cause us and give us the eyes to see the ways in which we operate, the way we speak, the things we do, the things we refuse to do that would suggest we're living according to a future that's not the one offered us? I ask that you would give us a vision together for what it is you're asking us, asking of us in our current moment and so that we would live such lives among people that they would have a sense and an understanding of where this whole thing is going. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all my siblings said. Thanks for engaging with our weekly teaching. Before you go, we wanted to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. As DCC, we hope that you will find a community that encourages and challenges you in your faith. And one of our favorite ways to do this is through our community groups. These groups seek to grow closer to God, share life and friendship with each other, and care practically for their neighbors and their communities. We have a number of groups listed on our website. So whether you're looking for other parents with young kids, fellow young professionals, or want to engage with our new Falling Upward group to explore what it means to live out the second half of life, we have a group for you. And if you don't see the group you're looking for, we would love to equip and empower you to create that space and lead a group of your own. You can visit our website at denverchurch.org groups to get connected and find a group for you. To stay connected with everything that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email through our website, denverchurch.org, or download our DCC app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. Again, thank you for listening. We hope to be together again soon. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that together we might be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.